Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Rhonda, for reading the scripture. This evening, we are confronted with our sin, which is uncomfortable for us. We don't like looking at the things that we do that we shouldn't, or our failures to do the things that we should. And we particularly don't like looking at the major flaws in who we are. That often drives us to try to mitigate the consequences of sin. We cover things up. We lie to avoid getting caught. We justify our sinfulness with half-truths. We really do downplay how bad things really are. And sometimes we simply ignore it all. We don't like looking at our sin because it tells us how bad we are. But Luke 23, and the whole Bible really, forces us to see our sinfulness. And it not only forces us to look at who we are and what we have done to see our fallenness and our rebellion, but it also reveals sin for what it actually is, a monstrous crime against an infinitely worthy God. And it's important to understand that it's not just what we've done, either. After all, most of us are upright and decent people. But sin isn't just transgression, but also the want of conformity to God's standard, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. It's not just what we do, but who we are. My brokenness, my sinful bent, everything about me, is in fact monstrous. When we look at Luke 23, we find that there's in fact no way out, no way to escape this terrible and awful truth. You see, this chapter gives humanity no room for escape. It is clear that sinful men killed the only one who deserved only praise, glory, honor, and dominion. These were garbage people doing terrible things. Unless we cast the blame on those sinful men 2,000 years ago and absolve us of any culpability or guilt, we are reminded that we are right there with them. We can't help but see ourselves in these sinful men. Every time we sin, what do we do? We're saying, I know that I shouldn't do this, but I don't care. Jesus, you're not enough. I'm going to do it anyways. We stand there hurling and scoffing with them every time we sin. We stand with the false accusers. We stand with those who demand a murderer be released instead of the perfect one. We stand with those calling for crucifixion. So when we read, the the crowd cries out, crucify him, crucify him, that is in fact our confession. That we helped put Jesus on that cross. And yet, our guilt doesn't tell the full story either. You see, it's not enough to say that we're guilty, that we stand with them. We need to see what our sin deserves as well. We need to see the consequences of our sin, the wages of sin, to use biblical language. And we see that 
in the brutality of this chapter. Think about all that the Lord had to endure that day. A crown of thorns piercing his brow. The scourging of the whip that flees his back to ribbons. The sting of the robe placed upon his torn flesh. The mocking and scorn of the crowd. The shame of being displayed naked upon the cross. The lonely abandonment because his closest friends fled. The agony of nails driven through wrists and feet. The exhaustion of pushing up on those stakes to simply draw breath. The utter injustice of it all. And most importantly, the full measure of wrath and judgment from God for the sins of all of God's people throughout all time. Think about that. My own sin individually brings upon it an eternity of wrath and judgment. And that's just for me. But Jesus took the wrath that every Christian ever deserved. He took the wrath that I deserved and that you deserved and that you deserved and everyone deserved. That is his. It really truly boggles the mind what he endured. And then as Matthew 27 tells us, Jesus experienced being forsaken by his Father, whom he loved from eternity. Do we truly see the cost of our sin? Do we see that this is what we deserve? Do we see the pain, the anguish, and the suffering that we have caused the Lord? Truly, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We sang just that a little while ago. But Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. The soldiers were right in saying that Jesus could come down from that cross if he wanted to. He was able. He didn't have to stay there. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to be crucified. He didn't have to die. And in fact, he really shouldn't have experienced all of that. And yet he did, because it was love that kept him on that cross until it was finished. A love that will go to the uttermost to gain that which it desires, which is you and me. Just as we see the measure of our sin, what it deserves, we also see Jesus' faithful love for us and of us, driving him to do all of this. Even while he was on that cross, he was thinking, and interceding for you and for me. Think about some of his words on that cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And also, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's thinking of you and me even while he's suffering. And when we suffer, we usually think of ourselves, how to lessen suffering, how to stop it, how to get away but not Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus kept his eyes upon the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross. Joy. That's a strange word to be thinking about here on Good Friday. And yet it was Jesus' joy to lay down his life for us. It was his joy to take all that we deserved upon himself. And why? Why? 
Because you and I are his treasured possession. We are his children. And so the burden he bore for us was not burdensome, but rather his greatest desire to save those that he loves. That's why we're here. We have hope, a hope that never perishes. And we can see that hope clearly because we know that Easter morning is coming. But it was not that way that first bleak Good Friday. Jesus was dead, buried, and in a tomb. The hope of the world seemed to have been snuffed out. And even though we know that Easter is coming, and coming quickly, it is good and right for us to sit in the tomb with Jesus, to spend time dwelling upon the cost of our great salvation. Romans 6 tells us that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see that to truly understand and appreciate the gospel, to really understand the glory and the wonder of resurrection morning, to truly enjoy Easter to its fullness, we must start at the right place. And so we start with today. We start with Good Friday. We must start with our sin and his righteousness and the cross. We have to start with the death of Christ before we can celebrate rightly the resurrection of Christ at Easter. And so, between now and Easter, let us contemplate the cross. Let us fix our eyes upon the price of our sin and the great love of God as seen in Jesus' suffering and death. Let us remember that we were supposed to be in that tomb with no hope of resurrection, because death, death eternal, is what we deserve. Let us sit and wait for that resurrection, lifting our eyes to our Savior, calling out with the disciples from of old, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Father, it is us who cry out among the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. It is us who scoff at your goodness every time we sin. It is us who drive the nails into your hand because, Lord, we are sinners. And you came to save us from our sin. And so, Lord, as we contemplate your death and the great costs of our salvation, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the magnitude of our sin, to see just what it took to save us, us good, upstanding, sometimes righteous people who think that we're not all that bad. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, we pray, that we might have a good picture, a good look at who you are. And so, Lord, show us Jesus and show us your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.